Before the Rings of Power, there were the Silmarils. Before Sauron, there was his master Morgoth. Before Aragorn and Arwen, there was Beren and Luthien. Join us as we explore Tolkien and all the ages of Middle-earth with your hosts from TheOneRing.com, Jonathan Watson, Michael Grumbine, and Dan Coates. Hey, welcome, everybody. We're at the end of the first age. Oh, moment of sadness. Can you believe it? But how yet, did, it's such a short here? age. Yeah. How did, how did we get here? By the end of this chapter, the entire land that we spent our days <laughs> learning about and all of its geography will be gone. So sad. So sad. That right there, speaking such doom onto our proceedings today is Michael Grumbine. Michael, nice to see you today. <laughs> how you doing? And Dan chuckling at my pithy prose. <laughs> That's me. I'm the, I'm the guy that chuckles. Wearing the awesome Legend of Zelda, A Link <laughs> to the that. Past. You like that? Nice. Uh, that which, which version is that? That is uh, the Super Nintendo. Oh, uh, the Super Nintendo. Never yeah, played the Super Nintendo was, version. You know, when I was in second grade, I got the Super Nintendo for Christmas. And I probably spent, I, I'm not proud of this, but I think I probably spent like a solid year just playing that Zelda game. Wow. Like every spare moment, if I wasn't doing homework or something, it was playing Zelda. That's amazing. Back when yeah. games were good, you know, I, I bought, I got the, like when I had a Wii and they had, you could get the original Legend of Zelda yeah. um, for the Wii. And I, I bought it one evening, like, this is what I think when my kid was like my 13 year old, it's probably like a dozen years ago. He was like one and I was just staying up late and I finished the entire game in one night. It took me like four hours because wow. I, I remembered so much of it. And I was like, oh yeah, I can go here. And then here's where you burn the, <laughs> here's where you burn the, uh, burn the bush and oh here's where you move the gravestone and then here's the hidden part mm-hmm. up into the mountains where you can get the and so i, was, I just remembered all of it and i because i had played it so much as a kid and i was so, so disappointed when i finished i'm like oh that's actually a really short game compared to games yeah these days. Oh, that's, that's that's the first one on nes yeah the first nes one oh, gold man. cartridge yeah back in the day that was yeah, my, it's, it's, yeah. it's probably a short game but it's so um opaque like it yeah. doesn't tell you anything. It just drops you in and says, "Figure it out." And it says, "Go, go in the cave and here, go yeah. take this. It's dangerous out there, or whatever that frame is." Anyway, go take this. Legend of Zelda, elves and Octoroks, all born still out of Tolkien's world. I messed up. I thought I was in exploring Tolkien. Apparently, I'm in exploring Nintendo. <laughs> exploring, exploring Hyrule. <laughs> wow. All right. So we this will explore. Game? So. Uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna explore. We're, we're at the last chapter of the Quintus Silmarillion, the end of the first age, um, and uh, it's been it's been, guys. I can't like it's hard to imagine that we're actually closing this up. And in the meantime, in the last, I mean, I think our first podcast was like May fifteenth of last year, somewhere right around the middle of the May. So, so in between, like doing this podcast, these episodes of the the Silmarillion, and then also the Rings of Power, and then some of the interviews and other things like that, we've 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 come a long way. I think we'll, we'll try and figure out maybe something special. Maybe we'll we'll do a Torque Inquisition for for each of us on the one year anniversary, and we get to ask. We'll make it free for everybody, and can ask ourselves the uh, questions from the comfy chair. Confessions yeah. from the comfy chair. Confessions from the comfy three chair. confessions at once. It sounds very Catholic to me. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. <laughs> confessions from the comfy chair. Uh, see, it's important. We have there to get that in every once in a while. I spent a lot of time putting that together with. with That's impressive. Stuff. Yeah, it's fun. Anyway, all right. So, hey, if you are here, uh, one, I would, I would love it uh, if you, if you like the show, even if you hate the show. Hey, go, go to iTunes or iTunes. I don't know, Apple Podcasts, wherever you do it nowadays. They always. 
It's been changing over so many years. I don't know anymore. But go there. Give us a five-star rating. Leave us a little review. Let more people know about it. And now that our name isn't an obtuse thing like Window on the West, we're now exploring Tolkien. It's a lot easier to find us, I'm hoping. And we start uh, climbing the ranks a little bit more easily uh, when people actually do a search for Tolkien or Lord of the Rings. But do we want to be popular? Or are we happy in our obscurity? No, I don't want to be obscure. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's more fun to be obscure. We, we can, we don't we can want say to what we out. want. We don't want to sell out. We want to be punk rock, right? <laughs> That's right. You That's can right. be punk rock and, 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 and not scraping food off the trash can in order to eat, right? You can actually... Wait, in my house? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think right. it matters how much money no. I make. We are... We are very thankful for the people who give us good reviews and find more people. We do have a, we're, we're, we get, a, you know, upwards of a couple thousand listeners every week. So between uh, all the different channels that we have it on. Um, and we thank our supporters, like Dan was just pointing to, of Adam and, and Lynn and Chuck. And uh, they, 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 they up the ante from $4 to $20 a month. Uh, and get a little bit more from it. But if you if you enjoy this, if you want to see our half hour, probably lo- or so, a longer podcast where we give more details about what we think of the what we of what we read and deal with some questions from folks, you can do the four dollar a month. Just go to thewondering.com slash members or member and um, sign up there. First month is free, so you can listen to four weeks of the extended podcast. If it's not if it's not your thing, then go ahead and cancel. And listen it. to us field semi-personal questions, which is yeah, always fun. That's right, and we let our hair down a little bit at the end of it. We don't we don't feel like we have to be, uh, you know, on so to speak. It's it's for the special people, the people who really <laughs> love us. Uh, but yeah, we'll deal with some questions about like, um, you know, what does Elwing mean in this episode when she says because of Luthien she made a decision. Uh, I'll talk about a little bit how Arundel and Elwing are like Aldari and then Arundis. I don't know. I, it's another story that Tolkien didn't finish, but is an incredibly well-told tale of familial woe. Uh, and then a little bit more about Maedhras and Maglor. We'll get into some of those questions there and some other things. Um, but before we jump into this, I know, I know, Michael, for you, the, uh, the percentages, the genetic yes. percentages... <laughs> Have been bothering you. So this is, let us, this is, let, hold on, hold this on, is hold the on. kind of thing. We have to give an intro to this because today, oh, this is our... All that is gold does not glitter. <laughs> so, Michael, what... But what actually, is, what is as glitter? it turns out, okay. <laughs> Arendil, who is going to be one of the subject subjects of this of this monologue, it does in fact glitter quite a bit, as we find out. He's uh, he it, twice in this chapter has said that he does glitter. So, I don't know if it's all this gold does not glitter, but uh, whatever it is, it, what it what it was was me being bothered, slowly bothered over the over the weeks as we had um, read the story of Baron and Luthien, which was back in chapter nineteen, all the way to chapter twenty three, which was last week where we kept referencing how elvish or how human the various ancestors of Arendelle and Elros and Elrond are. And it was something that as a kid, I thought to myself, I, I was a, very, a simple child, and I thought half elven meant you were half elf and half whatever else it was, usually human. But uh, it turns out not so much. Now, so for this particular segment, I'm just going to say, yes, we understand Tolkien was not all about the genetic percentages. It wasn't about exactly 50-50, fairly close in some cases. But um, but but it is interesting, the lineage of of the various um, followers, or sorry, ancestors of Eärendil and Elrond and Elros, his sons. Um, so Eärendil is famously um, half-elven. 
So he, mm-hmm. and which is actually absolutely true. He is half man from Tuor and half elf from Idris, um, his mother. So, oh, sorry. Idril. Uh, Idril. Um, did I say? He's half elven. Yes. He's half man. That's from correct. Tuor. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. From Tuor and Idril. So yes. he is ha- he is truly half elf, uh, mm-hmm. half elf, and so there's no there's no vacillation there. But famously, for most people that read Tolkien, um, Elrond is called half elven, and he's the one that, um, in fact, is not in, in, in at all half elven. So I did the numbers. Bottom line: here's the way it goes. You okay. follow from Arendil, Elrond's father, and Elros's father. They get um, uh, a quarter man and a quarter elf. Okay. Elving is the complicated one. As everyone knows, it's always the woman that's complicated. Ooh. So there's a, so Elwing is very complicated. And what it boils down to is because of the various ancestors. Um, well, before I give the percentage, let me, or the, the, the fractions, let me first say to Jonathan that um, we, in fact, were talking about in our previous, we have a correction of kind to make. So in our previous episode, we talked about how Luthien was... Actually, when she died, she was a man, or she was be, because mortal. she she was remade as mortal. But that was bothering me, so I went back and I read the text, and I've oh, I, okay. I've come I've come to the conclusion that she is not, in fact, a man. She is mortal, but she is still mm-hmm. elven, okay. and that that from two passages. But first, first, it's from chapter nineteen, so it says it's talking about the choices that um, Monwe gave to Luthien. So the first choice he said was that. Um, she would uh, be released from Mondos and go to Valamar there to dwell until the world's end among the Valar, forgetting all griefs that her life had known, and thither Baron could not come. But the other choice was this, that she might return to Middle-earth and take with her Baron there to dwell again, but without certitude of life or joy. Then she would become mortal and subject to a second death, even as he, and ere long she, would leave the world forever and her beauty become only a memory and song. And then... So it's she becomes mortal, but mm-hmm. her elven nature is is reiterated because he says first in this chapter he says, um, he for it was al- like that. That's amazing. For, no, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, there's a lot of singing. So, <laughs> so it was that alone of all the Eldalier, she has died indeed and left the world behind. So ah, she is considered so she is considered an Eldalier, and uh-huh, then furthermore uh-huh. in the chapter that we are about to read, it references. So the blood. Wait, wait. So what you're saying is she, I, she identifies as mortal, but yet she's <laughs> still elven, even though she, she's she's uh, trans. She's she's trans elf. That's right. She's trans elf. Um, trans man. She's she's trans mortal. Yeah, trans, trans mortal. That sounds like a cool like toy. Trans mortals. <laughs> she is trans mortal, okay. uh, but actually she's not. She's because she's mortal in truth. But yeah. in the lineage where they were talking about, uh, where where um, at the end of the chapter that we are about to read, it also references her blood. It says, "For they were sons. This is they being Elrond and Elros of Elwing, Dior's daughter, Luthien's son, child of Thingol and Melian, and Eärendil, their father, was the son of Idril Celebrindal." Um, so it's referencing, it's, it's, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to read the first part. And from these brethren alone has come among men the blood of the firstborn and a strain of the spirits divine that were before Arda. So what it's claiming is that from Luthien came the blood of both, she's the only one that has the spirits divine, which is she, 
she is actually right. Maya. Right. And because her mother is Melian. And so from so if she was, in fact, made remade as a man, uh, even though she's mortal, she's remade as a man, then she wouldn't have that blood. Mm. Uh, she she would she would be hmm. a man and then right. and all, all of okay. her blood would be so she is in fact a, a, a even in her second life where she has her son dior yeah um, she is actually an elf well half elf half maya that makes her son dior a quarter um maya oh, that makes his daughter elwing wait so let's but dior, let's so dior is a quarter maya a quarter mm-hmm. elf and half human correct okay so that's that's Dior. That's, that's Remember, Elwing's dad. Uh, he he yes. of the very first fashion accessory. <laughs> yes, I'm not going to let that one go. So then, his, the the daughter. So, but Dior married an elf, Nimloth, who was um, a, a a relative of uh, Celebrimbor in Doriath, mm. and so his daughter Elwing gets half her el uh, half of her genetics are from her elven mother, and then from her father. She gets a quarter human, an eighth Maya, and another eighth elf, which makes her five eighths, five eighths elf, one eighth Maya, three eighths does that, human. Does that mean sixty-two and a half percent? Or 60, I'm sorry, one quarter human. Sorry. Yeah, sixty-two and a half percent elf. Right. She. She. Now. Yes. Oh boy. Oh go gosh. down one more generation. Now her. <laughs> now, so the Elrond, the half elf, is actually. From his half elven father and and his mixed up mother, he is nine sixteenths wow. elf, three eighths human, one sixteenth Maya. Wow! So <laughs> the actual lineage of Elrond and Elros, not quite half. This we, we so wait wait let me, so, henceforth. So, let's say wait one more time. Nine sixteenths mm-hmm. elf elf. One sixteenth Maya, mm-hmm. that's five and th- eighths, and, and then three eighths human. human. Okay, yeah, that adds up. Crazy. So, so, so it turns out that Elrond and Elros are just super confused. That's <laughs> um, but they actually have Maya in them, and no, a lot more. They're a lot more Maya than Elizabeth Warren is Native American. <laughs> so. There's that going for him. Well, by by Tolkien's own uh, naming, like saying half elven for Elrond, maybe you know Elizabeth Warren would be a half Native American. Oh, that's <laughs> that's <same>. right. <laughs> no. She's really hoping for the Tolkien mode of of of, being, <laughs> of, of, of rating genetics of, of genetic nomenclature. So now that I put Dan to sleep, we can move on from this segment. <laughs> Wake up, Dan. That's, didn't care. <laughs> no. I know, I know. I but uh, after all these, I, I just it was always bothering me because I presumed originally when I first met Elrond in uh, in uh, the Hobbit when I was a kid, I thought it was half elf. Yeah, Turns out, right. not, not that was a lie. That was a lie. lie. He's, yeah. he's 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 instead, Elrond, of eight, instead of eight sixteenths, it's nine sixteenths. Nine sixteenths so, elf, yeah. one sixteenth so, Maya, three I mean, you, eighths human you can imagine tolkien putting there like calling him elrond the 916th elf probably wouldn't have worked so well doesn't have quite <laughs> Does, quite the gravitas he's like eh, nine, six, yeah that's close enough to half let's just go with half guys <sighs> no one knows what my, i know yep. he's so untrustworthy so, he's, he's, untrustworthy 50, author. he's 56 percent elf <laughs> not <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> slightly more all right class any questions we're good <laughs> Woo. 
Ooh, now that we lost right. half our listeners. This is the most Dan. thing I've learned in the entire Silmarillion yeah. is that. Most so. useless. There you go. This nine, That nine, is the most useless self. trivia that we have ever given you. All right, I don't know. Is that is that good enough for a big thought today or not? Or should we move into... Uh, <laughs> Dan's lost his big Dan's thought. Dan's <laughs> like big thought. He's like, I don't know. My big thought is like... <laughs> I lost I just, it all. I just, I just have numbers floating in my head. <laughs> Dan's big thought: I will never do another podcast. With again. <laughs> Nothing this in depth. All right, Dan. Here we go. You ready? I'm ready. Dan's big thought. Make it good now. Sweet. It's the last okay. one of the Silmarillion. I, the last I'm, first I'm, age I'm, big I'm, thought. Yes, and I'm promising no math. All right. So. <laughs> Uh, so I've got two thoughts this week and I'll, t- I'll try to keep them both brief. So it's not two big thoughts. It's just two thoughts. Okay. Um, so my first thought is as, as someone who is reading the Cimmerillion for the first time, this was definitely a difficult read through, um, mm. but it was rewarding. And I, I think the only way I was able to make it through the pod through, th- through reading this is because the podcast was holding me accountable to read it. Um, I think that I probably would have dropped off, um, and maybe some other people out there would maybe feel I the think same way. Everybody who's read Lord of the Rings or seen the films first or whatever, like almost everybody, like the yeah. large in, in the bell curve, it is a huge amount of people drop off from the Silmarillion from reading it. I did. Yeah. Everybody I know, I don't know if you ever did, Michael. The very first time you picked it up, but uh, there are very few people that go through it and be like, "Oh yeah, no, this is great. It's exactly like yeah. the Lord of the Rings because it's not what you expect at all." Yeah, and and so my, my first big thought is I wonder if Tolkien would have even published it in this form, or if it, or if he would have rather have made standalone story arcs like the Children of Hurin, and have that be a part of the bigger story like like he does this in Lord of the Rings where Aragorn is explaining to Frodo the story of Baron and Luthien through a song, and I wonder if he would have done things like that where just little little shorter stories that complete the full arc. Um, I'm glad we have the Cimmerillion, but like for me personally, it was super hard to read, especially when you're reading all the genealogies and all the names and all those F and elves. And, uh, and, uh, and a lot of the earlier stories, they're just, they're setting up things that happen hundreds of years later. So it's, yeah. it's such a, it's such a difficult read through. So if, if anybody who's made it this far to this episode, congratulations, you've made it. Um, I've made it. We made, we made it together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that's my first thought. Second thought, thought, second thought, and I, I like to do my sermons, right? So I'll keep this to be like a mini sermon, um, uh, just related to, to this chapter um, alone, that evil, even though it seems super powerful and overwhelming, and it's, it's basically Morgoth in his, in his victory over the, the elves of, of Beleriand, he's thinking, I've won. I, I've got everything I want. Um, but in the end, evil doesn't pay. And uh, we see the ultimate end of, of Morgoth in this, um, in this chapter. As powerful and as overwhelming as his victory seemed, uh, it's, it's when good decides to act, it's, it's over. And it's over pretty quickly. And the other thing I noticed in this chapter is that Eärendil, he operates in this chapter like a priest. He, he's very much like, uh, um, like okay, so... F- for Christians, Jesus is our high priest. He, he assumes our nature and he represents us before God, the father. And in a certain, it's, it's really interesting to me that the Valar will not accept anybody in their courtroom to hear the case of the Noldor, unless someone is both a man and an elf. And we see Eärendil fulfill that he's, he is both elf and man 
kind of like how Christ is both God and man, truly God, truly man. He's truly elf and truly man. Whatever, whatever the math numbers are, I don't know. <laughs> you said you weren't going to bring that into here, <laughs> but 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 he basically he 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 acts he acts like a priest in that he he represents he he's like the federal head. Mm-hmm. He represents mm-hmm. everyone mm-hmm. who's left behind. So yeah. I thought that was really interesting, and that he's he's also not able to go back um, after he he goes and he he presents himself as that that mediator between the Valar and the elves and the men in middle earth, something about that process, he can never go back. And I thought that that was interesting. Now, now, and I, th- hmm. I think that's Tolkien's way of setting up the mythology of the morning and evening star, you know, so now you have Arendil, Arendil, he's, he's up in the sky now with the, with the Cimmeril on his brow. And so he's, he's kind of, Tolkien's way of, of introducing a little bit of a connection to our world, to, to his mythology. Mm-hmm. But it's just interesting to me that he presents himself kind of like in a priestly role. And there's something about that, that he can just never go back. Hmm. I don't know. What do you guys think? I love it. I think, I think, I think as a mediator between Christ being the mediator between God and man, it's clear. I think there's a clear metaphor there with an, a type there of a deal. Um, as a mediator between the gods, small g yeah. gods, and of the Valar, the yeah. ones that have give, been given stewardship of the earth and, and man. I've always found fascinating, what I've always found fascinating about that, Dan, is why. Why is it that Eärendil had to be man as well as elf? Because yeah. the, doom of the, the doom of the Noldor was a Noldor thing. I mean, that's right. that that was their it was their um, fate because of their horrendous decision and murder, the kin slain and the rejection of the Valar and the, the authority of the Valar. Um, and so why is it that the Val that the Valar required the representative to plead the case, be both man and elf or be able to represent both men and elves? Um, I, I have a, th- a thought in, uh, of my own on that, but I've always I've, 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 I'm not satisfied with it uh, because it's mm-hmm. always been a fascinating question to me. So, hmm. I've never um, thought of it in in, in priest like terms, but I can com- certainly see it now. And I don't think that Tolkien was trying to create uh, a through line to say that he is a mediator in the same way that Christ would be the mediate right between the, but I would say that his, he's his, a type. his, yeah, 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 exactly. His, his, his life and his beliefs inform what he writes. It doesn't dictate what he writes. Does that make sense? That's right. Yes. Um, oh, you yeah. mean from a Tolkien's perspective, from Tolkien's perspective. Like, I don't want people to think like there's, there's a pre the, like a Arundel is a priest of sorts. It's not an allegory. Is what I'm trying to say. No, no, it's <laughs> so, no, it's yeah. not. But, but it is a, but it is a Christian myth. As Tolkien yes. says, to quote Agreed. him, unintentionally at first, and then intentionally in the right. in the rewriting. So it is not in, in, intended to be completely separated from what Tolkien saw as the truths. But as far as was he writing it as a one to one? Was he writing Arendil as Christ? Right. I don't think so. Right. I think it, I think right. it was a myth in which he he believes that myths, of course, as we've discussed many times, he believes myths contain the deepest truths in them. And so, since one of the deepest truths is the coming of God and the mediation between God and man, um, coming of God to earth and mediation, then there's going to be some types of that in his mythos. Um, 
but there's many, many differences. Arendelle is, of course, not perfect in the slightest, the and and there's many ways, yeah. many more ways in which Arendelle is not like Christ than the ways that he is like Christ. But there is that interesting mediator role. Yeah. Well, let's here. I'm going to start with there's. I mean, there, there's a lot to talk about here, and one of the most interesting lines, which we maybe once we get to it, will is to me is Aonwe's greeting to him. Mm. Um. Anyway, we'll get to that. But I thought we could also start with, um, and I'm sure what what Dan you brought up, we're going to continue to talk about in this episode. But um, is uh, is uh, from letter 297 from uh, the letters of J.R. Tolkien, where he talks about uh, Arendil. <laughs> I have to think about it every single time. I'm Arendil, um, and uh, and so this is from two, letter 297, where he talks about the name Arendil. Uh, the name is, in fact, as is obvious, derived from the Anglo-Saxon Arendel. When first studying Anglo-Saxon professionally in 1913, I had done so as a boyish hobby when supposed to be learning Greek and Latin. So he was like, no, Greek and Latin suck. We're going to go right to Anglo-Saxon. Um, I was struck by the great beauty of the word or name, entirely coherent with the normal style of Anglo-Saxon, but euphonic to a particular degree in that pleasing but not delectable language. Also, it's for, I just love that he liked it because it sounded cool. I mean, really, that's kind of like what he's saying, right? He, he just loved the, how the word was put together and how his, his ears and his mind responded just to the way it sounded. It's sort of like jabberwocky, right? It, it said something to him without necessarily meaning anything right away. Right. Can I just say that, mm-hmm. th- to me, the, those that are crafters of language, and there, there have been a few of those, you know, Shakespeare famously, uh, I think Tolkien is a crafter of language. They have the same, they seem to have the same sense about words and the way they're formed that people that have naturally artistic abilities have about, they're sensitive to art, have about mm. form and mm-hmm. color and shit, you know, just so, and yeah, the, the, yeah. the ways of art. Um, right. the, the, I think there is a, a, I mean, obviously there's a subjectiveness to it, just like there is with art, but I think there's also something else more that's less subjective where they actually see the beauty of words. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Continuing. He says also its form strongly suggests that it is in origin, a proper name and not a common noun that is born. This is born out of the obvious out. Let me restart that. This is born out by the obviously related forms in other Germanic languages from which amid the confusions and debasements of late traditions, it at least seems certain that it belonged to astronomical myth and was the name of a star or a star group. To my mind, the Anglo-Saxon uses seem plainly to indicate that it was a star presaging the dawn at any rate in English tradition. This is what we now call Venus, the morning star, as it may be seen shining brightly in the dawn before the actual rising of the sun. That is at any rate how I took it. Before 1914, so before 1914, 1913, when he wrote, he wrote this is the, the very first, I would say the very first story that he ever wrote within Middle Earth, uh, before 1914, I wrote a poem upon a- Arendil, who'd launched his ship like a bright spark from the havens of the sun. I adopted him into my mythology, in which he became a prime figure as a mariner, and eventually as a herald star and a sign of hope to men. Um, there's a little bit more there, too, that he talks about some more details of it, but that, that was the primary gist. So really, like the, the, the end of the Silmarillion was the start of 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 the first of his tales of the Silmarillion, which is interesting. Mm. So he started, he started at the end, even in, when he was 1913, he was what, 20 or so then? Wasn't he born in 1892, I think, I want to say. Isn't that right? Um, so, that sounds right, yeah. 
Yeah. So uh, 1892. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that, that that to me is really interesting. And I love that the reason he used that, that, that the story came up was like you said, Michael, it's the beauty of the word. And that to me is still why my primary reason for reading books is when um, things are written in ways that are beautiful to me. I enjoy the construction of the language and mm. how they use it. And more so than even the world building and the plot sometimes that it says things in ways that I wouldn't be able to say it. And if we're talking to just the name itself, just the way it sounded, right? It's, it's why we go back to Lewis Carroll and Jabberwocky. It's why he wrote it because he picked words. He created words that would sound like they meant something, but didn't, but yet we got a feeling out of those words, even though they weren't necessarily, um, they didn't have uh, inherent meaning to them anyway. Yeah. All right. I so, love it. Getting started with Arendelle. So how about we, yep. Why don't we, lay out the arc of this whole chapter of what okay. happens, and then we can delve into the parts you had mentioned earlier off camera, Jonathan, that this was, we have kind of two parts. The first part is the seeking of a, of Arendil the Mariner, um, the seeking for, and it's, it's interesting because it says that he has two reasons, two purposes grew in his heart, says Tolkien, blended as one, in longing for the wide sea. He sought to sail thereon, seeking after Tuor and Idril, who returned not. And he thought to find perhaps the last shore and bring, ere he died, the message of elves and men to the Valar in the West that should move their hearts to pity for the sorrows of Middle-earth. So one of his reasons is simply, yes, he's seeking after Tuor and Idril, but it's basically sea longing. Like he he desires to sail into mm -hmm. the West because mm -hmm. that's where his father and mother sailed off. But it's, it's the ocean, and he's there. So he's a great mariner. So he seeks and does not find for a long time, and then his wife comes to him, Elwing comes to him through um, a variety of, uh, through a tragedy, um, that and, and he does, in fact, succeed at that point. He goes to Valinor, makes his plea, which is accepted um, by the Valar, and we can talk more about that. And then the Valar come to Middle-earth, and bring war to Morgoth. And Morgoth finally um, finds a foe that he cannot overcome. And, uh, and, and his, it, Morgoth is defeated, um, ultimately defeated. He is, in fact, chained in the timeless void. So he is, he is removed from Middle-earth entirely. And, um, and then the, the, um, the tale ends with the final fate of the remaining two Silmar of all the Silmarils, actually, but... Um, but with the remaining two, especially. So, and obviously that means that's the end of the Silmarillion because we're done with the Silmarils. Silmarils. <laughs> so it, the rest of the story of Tolkien's world has to be called, has to be come in by different names, but that's the general arc. Yeah. So how about that first part where we're talking about the last remaining colony of the elves in middle earth, basically in Beleriand anyway, which is the, at the mouth of the Syrian. And we have, and the isle off of that of Balar, I think. Yes. And so, so it was interesting because it just seemed to me like they're all just hanging out there. I don't know, waiting for Morgoth to take them out, I guess, ultimately. Um, they're just trying to live at the, in, they're in the Bay of Balar. Yep. There you go. You got the map up there. Everywhere else in Beleriand is all of Morgoth, except for some of Osirian and Taurim, Duinoth, um, and, and that's it. Everything else is Morgoths. And, and yep. yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and so they, they are there and they're there with the last remaining Silmaril, 
that well not sorry they're there with the Silmaril that the only Silmaril that Moriath does not have right right they're, so Elwing has the Silmaril and just yeah. to recap then Elwing is the um, granddaughter of Baron and Luthien and um, so she is and she has just and she has married Arendil who is the half elf um, son of the two or the most elvish of men and Idril the yeah. um, princess of um, Gondolin, daughter, right? No, Turgon's daughter, right? Yep, Turgon's right. daughter. Yes, right. Um, so okay, okay. So let, let's talk about like so. So Maedhros hears that they have the Silmarils, and eventually they need to go there. I think the most interesting line that Tolkien wrote about the Silmarils in this whole chapter is that. Um, uh, so, so this is right near the beginning. Elwing and the people of Syrian would not yield the jewel. To Maedhras or Maglor, who are the only uh, at this point is are Amrod and Amras still alive? Yes. So, so there are four they remaining are. at this point. But the, yeah, there are three sons of Fionnur have been killed already in and the near Nyth or not yet. And then yes. okay, and so uh, which Baron and Luthien had won, had won, and Luthien had worn, and for which Dior the Fair was slain, and least of all, while Arendil. Am I saying that right? Their lord was on the sea. Arendil. Arendil. For it seemed to them that in the Silmaril lay the healing and the blessing that had come upon their houses and their ships. Hmm. So to them, the Silmaril wasn't like, like it was the, it was the, the, the objects that bound Feanor's children to the oath that caused the destruction of the world. But to, uh, uh, to, to, to Elwing, in the Silmaril lay the healing and the blessing that had come upon their houses and their ships, which is really hmm. interesting. Cause, and they say the blessing that had come upon their houses and their ships, but they've been destroyed. Like they've been they're 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 at the very end of the world, so to speak. Right, they're right up against the shoreline. So this this blessing, uh, the healing. I'm, I'm just it's so curious to me that that's what he chose to wrote there to write there about the Silmaril. So the healing must be a kind of spiritual healing because. They seem to have some sort of happiness, even though they're they're basically the last community of elves and Valerians left, and and their time has got to be limited. They've got to know their time is limited. Yeah, yeah. So that must be the healing. They feel like the Silmaril, with the light of Valinor in it, is the source of that. That is interesting. That's a very interesting yeah. passage. Yeah. And it, but uh, but you but know, I think I think there's also some um, uh, some prophecy in that. In that they knew that hmm. it was uh, you know the Silmaril needed to be born in some way back to Valinor uh, in order oh, to speak to the Valar. I mean that perhaps it, the the healing and the blessing that would come on their houses and the, and their ships. Uh, yeah, it's it's a weird. I'm, I don't fully understand exactly what he meant by it. And and honestly, this entire story of um, uh, of uh, of the the destruction of Beleriand and Arendil and 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 everything, it seems so brief. And I think Tolkien meant it to be there meant it to be so much more to it that I think we never got. He never got to to right. finish. Right. You can imagine in this tale, this first few paragraphs of this chapter, you can imagine another story the length of you know. Yeah, absolutely. Sons of Turin, or... right, right, or or even, and we'll talk about Sons this again of, Turin, of, of like uh, Aldarion and and Arendis, and that that mm -hmm. uh, Elwing didn't want. She wasn't a huge fan of Arendil going out and being a mariner, but right. yet we hear like later we hear uh, Eanwe say of mariners most renowned, and I'm like, yeah, but we we didn't get anything about him really being a mariner in this part of the story. Um, it feels it feels unfulfilled. It feels un incomplete. To me. Right, because it says literally. <laughs> Um, Tolkien says, 
after describing Vingalot, the foam flower, which is the ship that Círdan built Eärendil. It's, he says, in the lay of Eärendil is many a thing sung of his adventures in the deep, um, in the deep and in lands untrodden, and in many seas and in many isles. But Elwing was not with him, and she sat in sorrow by the mouths of the Syrian. Yeah. So clearly, there's. If, I mean, I, I'm I'm picturing sort of like uh, the Odyssey, sort of you know the adventures on the on the ocean of a of a great hero going from island to island. Um, ultimately yeah. not finding what he was seeking. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens then is that uh, the, the uh, Feanor sons hear of that. And then we have the third of the great wrongs where they came down suddenly upon the exiles of Gondolin and the remnant of Doriath there at the mouths of Sirion and destroyed them. Right. We, you know, I used to like Mithras, you know. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. He had a, he had a little uh, upswing of uh, his, his pull numbers went up in the middle of the, of uh, the first stage, but but now he comes back. He so there's only four sons of Fionor remaining: Mithros, Maglor, Amrod, and Amras. Amrod and Amras are slain in this kin slain. Interestingly, even some of the Noldor switch sides and are killed with with um, they fight against the sons of Fionor, and uh, and they're slain. Kirdan and Gilgal had come too late from the Isle of Balar. Elwing has already thrown him herself into the ocean with the Silmaril rather than let it fall back in the hands of the sons of Fionor. And uh, Maithros and Maglor take Elros and Elrond, the the, right. the, the children of Elwing and Eärendil, uh, to to themselves. But Ulmo once again decides, hey, you know what? This is not how I want the story to end. So he bore up Elwing out of the waves and gave her the likeness of a great white bird, and upon her breast there shone as a star the Silmaril, and she went out and saw Arundel. <clears throat> it's, go ahead. Well, I was going to say we've switched modes here. The rest of this chapter reads more like the fairy tale, like the Baron and Luthien. It has a lot of elements to it that are highly fantastical, mm-hmm. um, and and so and it's so it's interesting here that he switched back modes. You know, going from the destruction of Gondolin, Doriath, the Turin Turinbar. Sons of Hurin, um, it's all, you know, we were in the mode of tragedy, and now we've switched back to the mode of legend and fairy story, yeah. and, and and creation myth ultimately, right? And and I mean, the Valar themselves are taking a direct hand, so they are characters again, in and not in just the way that Olmo was this sort of, um, you know, sometimes in Greek plays you'll have one of the gods appear and say something or do something, and they're technically characters, but they're only characters in the in the sense that they set up the architecture of the story mm. rather than yeah. usually playing much of a part in the story. Um, but um, so Olmo was kind of like that in the previous two chapters. Now, now he and the rest of Valar are actually uh, main or not main characters, or at least secondary characters, and uh, and everything else is more like a fairy story. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, Elwing finds Arundel. They, Arundel, they, um, well, yeah. Let, let's also make a point right here. As, as she finds him, 
Uh, uh, Maglor took pity upon Elros and Elrond, and he cherished them, and love grew after between them, which is interesting, which would have made an interesting part of the story that was unfleshed out here, too. So there is some sort of, you know, positive relationship that Elrond and Elros ended up having. Which with is them. really messed up because totally um, messed up. there's a little bit of Mithros uh, and Maglor slaughtered all his people, all, the, all Elrond and Elros's people. A little bit of, um, what's, what's that Stockholm called? Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome. There you go. Yeah. Going, going on there. Elrond and Stockholm victim. So Arendil makes it to Valinor. He makes it to Tol Erseh with uh, Elwing at his side and uh, three other mariners. He sends them back. And as you pointed out before in previous weeks, he comes upon a time when there's uh, there's a festival again. Like there's, always with the festivals. It's always with the festivals. What's up with that? I don't remember which festival this was. However, he gets there and nobody's around and, and he's like, dude, where is everybody? What's Why is it so quiet? Which is a little weird, which would be pretty creepy and eerie. Uh, I'm not sure. Do you feel like that's on purpose that the, the whole the the it's empty because they know he's coming or it's empty just because it's a festival? I don't think that it's empty because they know he's coming. I'm not I'm not I gonna say, I'm not going to say I don't that I don't think the some of the Valar might not know he's coming. There might be some that definitely almost definitely knows he's coming. Well, yeah. And I think I think Aonwe, right. The let's get to mm-hmm. his line because he greets him with such fanfare. Wait. What? What? Yeah. You want to bring up something else? I have a silly line, which. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Comes with the all that was gold does not glitter. So Arendil is walking through this empty streets of Tyrion. He walked in the deserted ways of Tyrion, and the dust upon his raiment and his shoes was a dust of diamonds, and he shone and glistened as he climbed the long white stairs. So he's literally covered in glitter, <laughs> diamond Same. glitter. He, which, it's making the point that the in Tyrion, the, the city of the Etern- eternal city of the elves in Valinor, um, the the dust itself is from the gemstones that line its yeah. streets, so it's diamond dust literally. So if you if you're gonna walk through the streets and get dust on your shoes, you're gonna it's gonna be diamonds. Yeah, yeah. And weren't also the shores um, like the the gems were uh, like it was like the sand on the shores were the gems that they had crafted as well, or something along those lines, wasn't that? That's really right. That's right. Yeah. So eat your heart out, Paul Simon. Diamonds <laughs> on the soles of his shoes. <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> All right. So Aonwe says this when he sees him. It's been quiet. He's walked upon uh, what the green hill of Tuna, and he says to to Arendil, "Hail, Arendil of Mariners, most renowned! The looked for that cometh at unawares, the longed, the longed for that cometh beyond hope. Hail, Arendil, bearer of light before the sun and moon, splendor of the children of the earth, star in the darkness, jewel in the sunset, radiant in the morning. I mean, geez, these are like." crazy superlatives i mean and he is a herald that's what heralds he, do they announce people <laughs> he's like he's like i'm gonna flex the muscles a little bit yeah. and he's like i haven't done this in a while nobody's yeah, it's really been, been a around. long time i gotta show people i still got it <laughs> i still got the herald thing going on but i feel like like that the the, the greeting that he has to him feels like wait like he's a what like i didn't hear about any of this here that he did i don't know he was a mariner most renowned or renowned or he was the splendor of the children of the earth a star in, i mean the star in the darkness and jewel in the sunset we know why that is part part of that also is because you know he becomes essentially the morning star venus the the star that we see uh at uh, sunrise before the sun is up anyway so but i i just love that line it's it's like one of those the 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 descriptive terms that he uses for arundel i think are, are they're beautiful and honestly the way that the uh, uh in the uh, audiobook for the Silmarillion read by Martin Shaw. The way that he reads it is read with such fanfare that I think it comes across mm-hmm. incredibly well. Nice. Um, all right. So uh, 
Aonwe greets him and they summon Arundel to the, the powers of Arda, Tolkien writes. And then they summon Ulmo because Ulmo's been, you know, he's got his fingers stirring this up for a while now. So like, I guess we've got to bring him out here. Is he going to actually come up out of the sea? Uh, how many crustaceans will be Hebrew bringing out into the shores with him? <laughs> We're going to have to worry about that. Um, and uh, and there and eventually, I mean, I don't know how much we want to get into this here, but um, well, we should probably but, read read the paragraph where they give the judgment. First, there's this funny debate. Like it sounds like lawyers debating in a courtroom between Mandos and Olmo, and they're giving <laughs> ar- argument <laughs> arguments. Uh. <laughs> It is told among the elves that after Arendelle had departed seeking Elwing, his wife Mandos spoke concerning his fate, and he said, "Shall mortal man step living upon the undying lands and yet I just live?" I this look of a courtroom right now with with him sitting there <laughs> and Mandos going, "Should, yep. should mild mortal man step upon living upon the dawn dying lands and yet?" And then almost stands up and like, you know, "Objection! For this obje- he was born." <laughs> yeah, almost raises you know, "Objection!" and seaweed comes flying off his hand. <laughs> For this he was born into the world, and say unto me, Whether is he Eärendil, Tuor's son of the line of Hador, or the son of Idril, Turgon's daughter of the Elven house of Finwood? So, I mean, Olmo's making a legal argument yeah. here. He's not. He's he's not saying have pity. He's saying, well, you call him a man, but is he a man or is he an elf? Yeah, right. <laughs> it could be. It could could be a man. Could be an elf. Yeah. So if he's an elf, then he doesn't have to die for stepping on on this immortal uh, shores. And um, and Mondo says, equally the Noldor who went willfully into exile may not return hither. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, don't wrong argue. elves, kid. <laughs> yep. <laughs> nice try, but uh, you you don't argue um, technicalities with Mondo. He doesn't he doesn't lose on the technicality side. But interestingly, um, when all was spoken, Manwe gave judgment, and he said, "In this matter, the power of doom is given to me." So he's now saying. Right. So you're talking about mercy, Olmo. You're talking about justice. This is the way I read it. You're talking about justice, uh, Mandos. It's my decision in this matter, which means because he's closest to the thought of Iluvatar, the Iluvatar has actually, in because of Eärendil's trip here, Iluvatar has, in this moment, given him the power to make the judgment. And Manway's judgment in this moment changes the fate of all mixed lineage forever. So we've had mixed lineage between elves and men and even Maya. Um, but Manway makes it a judgment here, which changes the fate of all going forward of all mixed lineage. And he says, the peril that he ventured for love of the two kindreds shall not fall upon Arendil, nor shall it fall upon Elwing, his wife who entered into peril for love of him. So he seems to interestingly hmm. think of mm-hmm. love as as the um, one of the mitigating factors of what they did, but clearly the fact that Arendil is half elven is is a factor as well. But they shall not walk ever again among elves and men in the outer lands. So you know it's not it's a bittersweet judge a merciful judgment. They don't get to do what Baron and Luthien did. No, they don't get to return. And this is my decree concerning them. To Arendil and Elwing and to their sons shall be given leave each to choose freely which kindred their fates shall be joined and under which kindred they shall be judged. Now, when Arendil was long time gone, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, basically, um, Arendil says to Elwing, after it tells about how Elwing was, uh, made, was befriended by the Teleri, says, then Arendil said to Elwing, choose thou, for I am weary of the world. Hmm. Hmm. Which means that 
he kind of wants it to be mortal. He yeah. wants to be mortal. Yeah, right. That's a good and point. She's, and I she says, that. Elwing chose to be judged among the firstborn children of Iluvatar <gasps> because of Luthien. He's like, honey, no. This is not the right thing. <laughs> so what does that mean, though? What does that mean? What does that mean to you guys? She's wearing the pants. <laughs> Come on. I don't mean that part. <laughs> I mean, it turns out in You Tolkien, mean because of Luthien. You got to be yes. Elwing. This is what we're doing, honey. <laughs> so... What, what she, does it mean? Because because so, Luthien, she 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 Luthien's lost her grandmother, Luthien, right? She doesn't. I, she, she I guess she she sees that as a you know she she had to experience the end of her grandmother in a way, uh, and perhaps she doesn't want. Um, there's part of her that doesn't want that to be part of her legacy. Is that like I'm gone? For yeah, it? that's the Pop. two the two options that I have in my head, and I don't. I just simply don't know which one is. One yeah. is what you just said, Jonathan, yeah. which is that she saw the death of her grandmother, Luthi, and fairest of all creatures of Middle-earth, and not desiring that, she chooses to be judged with the elves. Or, option number two, she doesn't choose because of her fear of death, but rather because of who Luthien was. And she sees that as a more noble nature, and she chooses the nobility of the nature, um, her, Luthien's before, true nature. Before Luthien chose her mortality yeah mm -hmm. so in other words luthien is like this archetype in tolkien's work he she mm -hmm. is the most beautiful she has the most glory of any creature of of uh, in arda um especially her with the cimmeril there was no nothing more beautiful ever um mm -hmm. and so i as an archetype i can see one reading of it being l wing just holding her in awe and saying i want this fate i want the, i want this nature this is yeah. my nature this is the nature that I that I adhere to most. And then just like in the Garden of Eden, the wife goes and so the husband follows. <laughs> well, actually, this is a question Harrison had for us to talk about in our extended uh, podcast, too. And he has his own. Don't listen, freeloaders. Yeah. No, no, no. Don't. No, no. Do listen. Go to thewondering.com. Thewondering.com oh, slash members. <laughs> and you can listen to it. We'll talk about his thoughts about it, which are, I think, um, maybe a third a third approach to what uh, oh, interesting. you said. So anyway, oh, cool. we'll, we'll jump into that. All right. We'll get What do you think, Dan? What's the reason you, you've been talking too much? I know. Oh man. Um, I, I think it's probably more that she had so much uh, reverence for Luthien and she, she had an affinity for, for the nature of Luthien, I guess she wanted to be, I think it's what she said. I think she wants to be like Luthien. Hmm. Um, I don't think it's the fear of death as much because I don't, I don't, I don't know. Cause yeah. I, I feel like the elves don't even have a concept of that, of like what, what death even is like, they, they don't know where the men go. So just, I don't know. I, I guess, don't, I, don't know. I guess an maybe like for my answer, I wouldn't use the word fear so much as the sadness that death brings to those. Hmm. Cause the, the, the death of the most beautiful, um, person female to walk on two feet in middle earth was luthien and she's no longer with them like there's no way she will ever come back and they lost that they lost that beauty yeah. forever so maybe that's the the the, the yeah. spare and anyway, anyway anyway we've got what's, we've got to keep moving on but yes oh, i was just gonna say what's interesting to me about this choice is how it's different is that they don't they can't go back they can't right, go back yeah. to middle earth yeah. they're stuck in valinor which I guess makes sense if you want eternal life, you want it in the blessed land, right? I, I don't know. Yeah, although there, he's not really in Valinor. 
because they 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 stick him up in his boat forever. Mm. Right. Well, yeah, I would choose to die rather than do that too. <laughs> but there's something in him. I would too. But I'm not a mariner, and there's something in, in him <laughs> about being a mariner. Like that is his nature. He his his he almost the boat is part of him. The, the sailing is part of him, and he returns. He gets to return every day to his wife and in Valinor, and so. There's, it's not that he's separated completely from Valinor. He just yes. he, he goes off on a daily trip for from now until all eternity, reliving his glory days, killing Ancaligon. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah, his... right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's it's fascinating. This whole you know why Tolkien made the choices with the with the people involved in this that he did. It's very like everything from how Mithros and Maglor act in this in this chapter to the the fates how the how the Valar treat. Arendil and Elwing is very interesting. Yeah, well, what, by by treat, what do you mean? How they treat? Well, treat them. Why is it that they couldn't go back? What I mean, they've they've come and they've they've sacrificed everything to make the plea. The plea is a good one. Why is it they can't go back? I don't know if there's an answer necessarily that's definitive in there. However, they, there is, right, they have set up um, a barrier ultimately. Mm-hmm. And to um, just even like the, the, the reluctance that they had in, to uh, even speak with him, I think is indicative of like, like that you're, you're, you're breaking the laws, man. And to, uh, allow someone like you still have to pay the penalty ultimately if you're breaking the law mm-hmm. and perhaps that's more where they're going with this is that like like you 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 re- you did your errand right but your errand means that um you you broke the leaguer against valinor against sailing to the west and right. uh, as a as a mortal so this is this is this is your choice and this is what you have left I agree with you. I think that's really good, Jonathan. I, I I hadn't considered that, and it actually rang true. It rings true with another theme. So everything in Tolkien, not everything, but most things in Tolkien have echoes, right? Mm-hmm. So there's another story that most people who have read the books are familiar with that isn't that this is an echo of, right? And that's Baragond in the city of Gondor. So Baragond famously is a guardsman in the Tower of Minas Tirith. And he breaks the the word of his lord, Denethor, in order to save Faramir, to do a, a greater thing. And then he slays his own his own kinsman, or not kinsman, his own guard, his own member of the guard, or at least member of the of, uh, at the in the city of the dead, the the warden of the gate, mm-hmm. slays him in order to save Faramir because Denethor has gone mad. His action is a good one and is recognized as that. And yet at the end, when Aragorn becomes king, he is, he is held. He has to be exiled. And he is exiled, as it turns out, to Athelion, I believe. But anyway, he has to leave. Hmm. And he cannot serve as a, as, a, as a member of the Tower Guard anymore um, because he broke the, this, this, this law of authority. Yeah. Tolkien clearly thinks that this, that when the authority lays down a law like this, even if you have a good reason to break it, there will still be consequences. So anyway, that's what yeah. it reminds me of. Yeah. Um, that's a great analogy to that or a great uh, uh, parallel. I hadn't thought about that. Two more parallels from Lord of the Rings in this chapter. One from my, to my mind, I don't know if you guys found any, 
It's about when the Valar um, gather their army. And it's explaining why um, why he did not... Uh, he being Morgoth? Morgoth. Why Morgoth was not prepared for... Uh, yep. Why he was not prepared for the assault. And it says... Yet it is said that Morgoth looked not for the assault that came upon him from the west, for so great was his pride become that he deemed that none would ever again come to open war against him. Moreover, he thought that he had forever estranged the Noldor from the lords of the west, and that content in their blissful realm, the Valar would heed no more his kingdom in the world without. Absentee landlords. Yep, absentee (laughs) landlords. For to him, for sorry, and this is the line that reminded me of of the Lord of the Rings, because a similar reason is given for why Sauron does not suspect that the the peoples of Middle Earth will try to destroy the Ring. Yeah, yeah. It says it says for to him that is pitiless, the deeds of pity are ever strange and beyond reckoning. Mm. So he he just it just does not compute. He doesn't even consider that the Valar would from from pity, um, even though funnily enough, from pity they had mercy on him in ages past and they've acted with pity at other times. So, but it just doesn't consider it. And that's the nature of evil. Just like Sauron doesn't consider that the, that the peoples of middle earth would, when given the ring actually just choose to destroy it rather than use it. So, so that's therein lies lay their one advantage um, in the Lord of the Rings. So that was one thing that I saw. Did you guys see any, did you guys have any other thoughts? So, uh, we didn't actually cover the battle, and the battle happens pretty quickly. Actually, it's not a. Yeah, well, it's um, well the uh, I, the only the only other parallel that um, in thinking about it, it's, I didn't read it to think about the parallels, but I would say that um, in the battle, um, Sauron in the final battle, Sauron never comes forth, and Morgoth never comes forth to join to join his armies, right? So Sauron, I, I love the the line. I think uh, they were unroofed. I think was it what he wrote the 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 dungeons the oh. um, the the the, the uh, oh man I, I like that line all the pits of morgoth were broken and unroofed <laughs> and the might of the valar descended to the deeps of the earth and there morgoth stood at last at bay and yet unvaliant i love that he just unvaliant he didn't have any so he was right, he wouldn't he wouldn't even come out he never like think about this after after ungallant, like he he never he didn't even fight there. He was never the fighter. He was the well. He fought Fingolfin. Yeah, he fought Fingolfin, right? But even then, he was he was afraid. But he never like in in the great battles, he never he never joined the battles. He no. was never there. He was always cowering, uh, and he would loose out you know his winged dragons and and uh, all the uh, the orcs that were uh, burned like straw in a in a sudden flame or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> orcs get dissed pretty big time in this. <laughs> like yeah, everyone people get a mention. It's pretty cool actually. The, there's only one thing that Morgoth has that actually pushes back the armies of the Valar, which are the release of the flying dragons, which are a new thing. All the dragons before this have been flightless worms and now he's finally got a, a, a an army of flying dragons and those actually push the valor back but the balrogs are all destroyed 
<laughs> the earth uncounted legions of the orcs perished like like straw in a great fire <laughs> or swept like shriveled leaves before a burning wind <laughs> uh, that's so great swept, swept like shriveled leaves before a burning wind that's another great like line of prose that tolkien writes because yes. you just imagine them like there here come the valar and these little things are running and there's like <laughs> gone there's nothing left it's the ash the gray ash of the orcs is uh peppering the plains there um but yeah, was that, that was another. I mean, that that was another analogy. Was there something else that you had? Uh, that you so thought? it's a small moment. It's at the. It's near the end. Um, so so it's in a very odd place. So they win. Now the mechanics of what happens next are a little fuzzy and don't quite work. Here's what I mean. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, they happen, and so we have to sort of work with what we've got. We're told that. Oh, first, there's the great moment, you know, that my kids all love, which is Arendil comes in his flying ship and he battles the greatest dragon ever to exist, and Caligon the Black, and and it says when he when he uh, fell, um, but Arendil came with shining white flame, and about Vingalot were gathered all the great birds of heaven, and Thrandor was their captain, and there was battle in the air all the day and through a dark night of doubt. It's a great scene, mm. a great mm. sentence through a dark night of doubt. Before the rising sun, Arendil slew Ancaligon the Black, mightiest of the dragon host, and cast him from the sky. And he fell upon the towers of Thangorodrim, and they were broken in his ruin. The towers of Thangorodrim are mountain peaks, so he actually changed the geography as he fell. That's how that, that's the uh, that's huh. that's how large and how terrible was his fall. So, um, so we. The, and with that, you know the Valar win. win. They, they, as you read before, Jonathan, they harrow the depths of Angband and they chain Morgoth and cast him into the timeless void. And so they've won, right? Um, thus, an end was made of the power of Angband in the north, and the evil realm was brought to naught. And out of the deep prisons, a multitude of slaves came forth beyond all hope into the light of day, and they looked upon a world that was changed. For so great was the fury of those adversaries that the northern regions of the western world were rent asunder, and the sea roared in through many chasms, and there was confusion and great noise, and rivers perished or found new paths. The valleys were upheaved and hills trod down, and Syrian was no more. So geography. Mm -hmm. Beleriand um, was changed because of this. This, yeah, I'll bring up the uh, the map that kind of shows what uh, what what actually uh, it looks like. There you go. So that's ultimately what happened: is that that whole area. Thanks, <laughs> train tracks. Uh, that whole area. Um, uh is is gone is like so so up up here Anfagwith up here further north of Anfagwith is the um uh Thangorodrim where uh Ancaligon the Black smote the towers in his fall from from the sky uh and it changed now here here's the interesting thing is like how many people died in this here was it a was it a slow change as the seas crept in or was it a sudden cataclysmic destruction that changed the borders of the world or the borders of the earth uh because they they came forth right they came they came forth and they saw the world was changed so i don't know 
Uh, maybe maybe I'm nitpicking here and, and looking at things that uh, aren't really that important. But uh, but what did happen is uh, <laughs> uh, the 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 Val the Valar took the Silmarils uh, and didn't uh, decided not to take them back to Valinor right away, to their own dismay or perhaps to the uh, prophecy that. Um, is necessary for them to be in their rightful places. This is what I was thinking about. It doesn't make sense from a technical perspective because mm. um, we have Aonwe in his camp and he is refusing. So, <laughs> it's just, I mean, imagine the, this is like ultimate chutzpah, right? So the war of wrath has come. The Valar have come to Middle-earth. Morgoth has fallen. Much of the lands of Balerion is has been destroyed and is underwater or soon to be underwater. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, so much destruction, so much death and the good guys have won. So they're, they're in their camp, presumably recovering, gathering people, celebrating maybe. And up come the two remaining sons of Fionor. And they're like, dang it. Give us the Silmarils. <laughs> <laughs> you have the entire armies of the Valar there, and they have the Silmarils. And, and still... what's, interesting, what's interesting to me is that uh, the Valar leave this whole task to Aonwe. They don't take a direct hand themselves. They, hmm. they leave their herald to handle this. And Aonwe handles it in a really weird way, reminiscent a little bit of the Valar of old, where he just sort of underestimates evil. He goes like, nope. He says, nope, you, the only way you're getting them back is if you come and stand judgment back in Valinor for the crimes that you've committed. And, uh, and, then, if, and then if Monway says to give them back, then I'll give you the Silmarils back. And, uh, and, and it's interesting here. I would think Maedhra, Maglor was the one who said his heart was sorrowful and he desired to submit. And Maedhras is the one now who's like, no. Right. right. Mythros My th- My has, has gone full of... Um, yeah, never mind. I won't. I won't use the the phrase. But he's gone. He's he's gone full baddie at this point. Yeah. Um, and uh, and he has. He's like, nope. We're. It's almost like he has a death wish. It's almost like he wants. They want to die because they invade yeah. the camp at night. They slay the guards because they haven't done enough kin slaying. So they got to slay some <laughs> more elves. They slay the guards. They take the Summerills and they're immediately caught. And they're like. Ready to die for the Silmarils. And then so it's almost like, like they want to die. Yeah. And then Aonway's like, no, please leave. We're not gonna we're not gonna kill you. Why? Why does Aonway not let the, like if anyone deserved death at this point of the elves, it's Mythros and Maglor who have I would orca- think like, like he's like I, I am not going to continue in this the 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 death that the Silmarils bring and bring mm. even more uh, darkness onto them than the sons of Sif Feanor already have, and maybe, maybe you know, he knows also the way it's going to end. You're right? He was impre- yeah, he could have been given a command and say, no matter what happens, do not slay anyone uh, in the in the holding of the Silmarils. Right. And so now we come upon the final fate of the Silmarils. So the two remaining, the last two sons of Feanor, Mythros and Maglor, now have. <laughs> it's like you know, guys too. remember remember that one Warner Brothers cartoon where Wiley e. Coyote finally catches the Roadrunner, and he's like, "You you you always got what you got what you wanted. Now what?" <laughs> 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 and he kind of doesn't know what to do. Yeah, um, right, right. <laughs> so after all these centuries, after the rash 
vows, kin slain galore, the ruin of an entire region of Middle Earth on their because of them and their 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 Noldor idiocy. <laughs> they finally get what they want. Each of them has got a Silmaril. And so neither neither of them can hold on to it because the pain right. is unbearable. They could not endure the pain, right, uh, of holding it. And so Mithras, he, he he comes up on a, uh, a a lava chasm and is like, "All right, I'm done." Woohoo! And he yeets himself right off into the lava. <laughs> Which that's, is that's the technical term. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Just like so that's that's my that's my final parallel with Lord of the Rings. So that's Gollum, right? Yeah. So Destroy he has okay. he has yeah. the Silmaril. He has what he's always wanted. It's in his hands finally after all the, and he's evil. He's fully evil. He's gone the circle from being a a, a good elf back in Valinor, and he's mm-hmm. now completely corrupted and he can't bear it. And he, um, I mean, in slight, slight differences, obviously Gollum didn't intend to throw himself off. Was it, was it, was it before, um, was it before he cast himself into the lava that he fought with, um, a Balrog and created, or whatever it was, and created the Mithril <laughs> on top of the mountain? Was that, was that before <laughs> or after in the Rings of Power? Uh, no. That... All right. Aye, aye, aye. I, I find that conversation that Mithros and Magwar have to be very interesting. Where, what did you like about it or interesting? Find interesting. Um, just that um, they, 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 they're talking about whether they should go through with this plan to take the Cimmeril by force. And uh, they're talking about, you know, they, they basically say, like, well, if Manway and Varda themselves deny the fulfillment of the oath, which we name them and witness, is it not made void? So aren't they, they're, they're kind of debating among themselves. Isn't our, isn't our oath over? Um, and then they say, well, Mathros answers and says, no, we also invoked Lubitar. So it's actually still in, a, in effect. And they, they have this moment where they, they realize they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. And Magor says, if none can release us, then the everlasting darkness shall be our lot, whether we keep our oath or we break it, but less evil shall we do in the breaking. And so he's basically arguing like, well, since it's either way, we're, we're going to, they, they, they think they have this belief that if they break their oath, it, that, that will curse them forever. But Maglor has the moment of like a realization. Well, if that's true, then why don't we do less evil? How about we not kill people to steal the, the jewels back? Yeah. And then it, at which and it just point as they decided to do it, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like, have you seen my one hand? Like, <laughs> my throws one the one handed. It was like, look, I lost one hand. I'm about to lose the other one. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, don't you just want to hold on to the similar? Yeah, yeah. It, it is an interesting discussion, and uh, like. Yet he yielded at last to the will of Mithras. It, it seems so brief and sudden that that he seemed that there could have been more of a discussion regarding why did he yield at least? Was it just the will of Mithras that that forced him into saying, yes, you're right. We cannot escape our own commitment to this doom upon us, to this uh, oath that has right. uh, hounded us. How common is that, right, in Tolkien, where evil, the greatest evil is done by finally at the end of the day, all the good reasons, all the beauty, all all the truth is on one side, and the other side, what is there? There's a will yeah. to do the wrong, and that's it. That's all that's yeah. left. The will of Sauron, the will of Morgoth, in this case, the will of Mithras. Yeah. And that's it. Will to evil. 
as Augustine can't says. Escape it. Yeah. And then we find out that Maglar was a great singer. I'm like, where where'd that come from? So <laughs> the like, only right. other one <laughs> notice this. Isn't this interesting? Hilarious, in fact. Tolkien never has a chapter without singing. And in this chapter, <laughs> and here it's a sorrowful end of the world kind yep. of like. And and the two greatest singers of middle of the elves, who are they? They're two losers, <laughs> Maglor and Diron. Diron, <laughs> who was jealous of Luthien back in Doriath, and yeah. was and was like chased off the cliff, tried yeah. to try to try to sabotage Baron. So that's yeah. funny. He was named so he was the greatest of the singer of, of old, whereas Maglor was mighty second. second best. So still mm. he was still, still only second best. Also ran. First so loser. Uh, and it's still said that he wandered ever upon the shore singing in pain and regret beside the waves. That's kind of a little bit of a like a to me that you know, that's the sound of the um uh the torment of the 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 caves that uh whistle with the wind so to speak right that's the that, that's what i imagine it's like the i agree that's where it's a little creation story there for that um and thus it came to pass that the silmarils found their homes one in the airs of heaven with Eärendil, one in the fires of the heart of the world with Gollum. My, i mean uh, with my my resource. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and one in the deep waters with uh maglor who could not could not stand the pain and cast it into the waters. Uh, and so it's somewhere in there. So maybe Ulmo knows where that is in the... Uh... You know what I just noticed? Is it doesn't actually tell about the death of Maglor. So Yeah, no, he just continued. They don't know. They just He just he just sang mm. in pain forever. Yeesh. And elves don't die. And elves don't die. So he's still somewhere singing. <laughs> I mean, if you're him... <laughs> There's probably the, the the special room for you in the halls of Mondos is probably not very nice. <laughs> like, I could lose the will to live and pass into the halls of Mondos. Probably not going to be very nice there. Hmm. I guess I'll just keep singing. Just keep singing. Do you guys have you guys seen that picture? There's a famous one by Naismith of the casting of. Yes. Um, I'll see if I can find it. Oh, you've got it right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Casting it here. Let me. Um... Maglor's casting. Does the caption say Maglor's yeeting the Cimmeril? <laughs> the great the yeet. The, the great, great yeet. yeet. Oh, man. All right, all right, guys. We got we to gotta, uh, finish up with our own yeeting of this chapter here. Uh, so we learn uh, that the, in those days, there was a great building of ships. A lot of the Eldar set sail into the west, but some did not, including Gilgalad, Elrond 916th Elven. Celeborn <laughs> <laughs> uh, of Doriath, Kierden the Shipwright, and Galadriel. Galadriel, of course, the wife of Celeborn. <laughs> we have it's... we have a full screen of Michael right now. <laughs> hey, yeah, good. I'm going to keep you up there because uh, I might show. sound good, but you look better. <laughs> no, that's false. Sorry. Hey, man, it's a one man show here, like putting all these cameras on in the right places. So yes, you're uh, amazing, Jonathan. Never let anyone tell you differently. <laughs> Despite what you say after the show, I will believe you now. <laughs> No, no. Uh, so anyway, so yeah. So at this point, the Valar take Morgoth. They cast him beyond the door of night, beyond the walls of the world, into the timeless void. And a guard is set forever on those walls. And Eärendil keeps watch upon the ramparts. I love that. The ramparts of the sky. Another great phrase. I love the way you said. Yet the lies that Melkor the mighty and accursed, Morgoth Bauglir, the power of terror and of hate, sowed in the hearts of elves and men, are a seed that does not die and cannot be destroyed. Never non it sprouts new. And will bear dark fruit even unto the latest days. 
In other words, Tolkien, and there are no happy endings. Yeah. The, the end. <laughs> yeah, the, the small stories might have happy endings, but the big story, it's, it's a tale of destruction and woe up until the very final battle, um, until the end of the world. And so that's the end. I mean, that's it. That's, so Morgoth is gone. Um, Sauron uh, turns into Halbrand. And we, Stop. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I just don't know how did let's Amazon talk about get how there? that works. How, how does that work exactly? How does that work? Yeah, no, me too. Anyway, and so the last thing that's written is I don't know if Tolkien writes this or if it, it'd be interesting to know if it was uh, Christopher Tolkien that, that writes the closing, um, where he says, Here ends the Silmarillion, right? This is the, uh, the official end of the Quentus Silmarillion. The book itself still has the Akalabeth and of the Rings of Power in the Third Age, but here ends the Silmarillion. If it has passed from the high and the beautiful to darkness and ruin, that was of old the fate of Ardamard. So like you said, it will, <laughs> the high and the beautiful pass into darkness and ruin. So there's no hope. And if any change shall come and the marring be amended, Manwe and Varda may know, but they have not revealed it, and it is not declared in the dooms of Mando. So no one knows how it's all going to ultimately end, uh, except for Manwe and Varda. They may know. And that's it. That's the end of the first stage. We're done. Dun, dun, dun. Awesome. Um, yeah. And so now we're into like w- w- the shape of the world we know when it comes to uh, Middle Earth uh, and the Lord of the Rings. And so the all that and the third time you all spent learning the new map <laughs> and the new lands. <laughs> okay. Forget about all that. It's, I think this is the point at which, Middle though, Earth. like uh, when I when I came into the Silmarillion uh, right after reading the Lord of the Rings, and I looked at the map. I'm like, what in the world is this? What, <laughs> well, how did I don't and I wish I would have had um, I wish I would have had this picture here to show me what it was mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. Uh, the, this published version of the Silmarillion that I have right here. This it's the, it's the overlay of the, of the maps of, uh, the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion of Beleriand and, uh, what we know as Middle Earth, because in here, all you got was, let's see, do we have it? Uh, right. Yeah. You have, you have this large map. Sorry, everybody who's listening, but there's the map of, wow, man, this is, this is you. I, I folded this out. I remember when I, when I picked up my dad's copy of the Silmarillion when I was in high school or junior high after, after reading this here and you get, you get this big old map here that's a fold out of uh of the of what we we're looking at and i'm like where is this why are why are we looking at all this and so now we're all done with that and i can put it away for good so i remember jonathan to build on what you said i remember when i first encountered this and to answer your earlier question no i did not finish the silmarillion my first, i made it through the valaquenta and then i was like Duh, geography yeah right yeah, yeah yeah for sure so so i i gave up when i was a kid on the silmarillion the first time i read it too but i think i had a similar confused reaction when i saw the map and the reason i realized later the reason i had that confused reaction is because the map looks actually quite similar Balerian uh, Balerian's general shape is very similar to middle earth's general shape in other words the submerged lands the co- if you look at the coastline the general shape of the coastline you're right where they right they angle to the north uh, west, and as they come down, there's an out jutting, yeah. and then a big and bay, and there's there's even a, a large a great river that runs north and south that ends in the bay, and you know Anduin in Middle Earth right. and Sy- and Syrian, right. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it actually to... looks. So I was like looking at it, going, okay, so did one become the other? Are these the old names? And then I was like, no, the mountains are different. 
that's just weird. I don't understand yeah. what's going on here. So I thought for a long time when I was a kid that it was the same place that had been changed. And it wasn't until later that I realized that it was a whole new land. Um, yeah. It's a whole new world. A whole new world. Okay. Stop. Stop. <laughs> we don't bring up Disney and their <clears throat> disasters here. Uh, so anyway, all right, guys. But like we can we can actually after an hour and twenty minutes we can jump into our extended podcast. If this <laughs> Thanks for the journey with us. Enough for yeah. you guys, and you love hearing our voices. You hmm. can hear them for. Then there's something another... really wrong with you. But join us anyway. <laughs> so if you made it this far, you can look down your nose at all the other normie right. yeah. <laughs> Lord of the Rings people. Yeah. So so You're if you like Tolkien. I was going to say, if you like Tolkien today, you did a great job of getting through someone because clearly you love, you like Tolkien and going through all this. Almost stuff. completely. So we're, you know we're going to go. It's a whole First, we've got to learn about Numenor, and then we've got to learn about how cool Sauron is. Yeah, so I next week, I don't think we'll get through all of a Calabeth. I think we'll probably split it up into two parts. No, two readings for a Calabeth. Yeah, and I think the first one might be just, we, we're, it's a little shorter where we can talk a lot about a, where it came from and who all the people are because there's a lot that's in, like, Unfinished Tales that's not in um the silmarillion's version of the akalabeth there's a lot more stories in but there. the basic setup for those that are new yeah. the connection is remember elrond and elros so elros his brother chooses a mortal life elrond chose the elven immortality and so elros becomes the father of a great nation of yeah. numenor which is yeah. what the akalabeth story we'll, is about we'll learn all about but it ties together well right into the end of the uh the age here and what happens with you know what happens with the humans that fought on the side of the Valar versus the ones that fought on the side of Morgoth and what is given to them. Anyway, we'll jump into it. We will jump into our extended podcast, which you can get to by, of course, going to the com slash members and uh, signing up and joining us in Discord and getting uh, getting uh, your questions in that we'll deal with here. So thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next week into the Akalabeth. Oh, and uh, I want to remind everybody we do live streams Every Friday, we're going to attempt to do every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. Uh, and uh, we had our first one this past Friday, even though we're recording it before the first one. So this is being recorded before. We're in we a little bit of a time paradox here in this. Uh... Yes. Yeah, right. So uh, so anyway, we're, yeah, make sure you join us there. Make sure you get to uh, thewandering.com slash members. You can ask questions during our live stream in our special chat room there, too. We will uh, answer those questions. And... Uh, and uh, hope to see you there. Yeah, look, uh, it's uh, it's in our live stream. If you go to thewondering.com or yeah, slash YouTube or youtube.com slash thewondering.com, you can get there and uh, join the waiting list, right? I think you can click waiting like for it and it'll alert you for it so that uh, you can see it there. We expect thousands and thousands of people on this on this first. Hey, I'll be happy if we get a couple dozen live ones. It's always hard to do a Friday afternoon, but we're looking forward to it. All right, guys, let's jump into like, the extended podcast. Like Abraham, we only need 10 good men. <laughs> just 10 uh if we can get 10 guests that'd be amazing 10 good guests all right extended podcast here